Yeah, so super nice to meet you. We're really excited that you're here today. Me and Dina we came out with our yellow Yerba, like we're representing. All right. Yeah, my name is Laura. I'm a first year math and economics student at UCLA, and I'm really passionate about going to corporate social responsibility. So I'm really interested in what you have to share with us today. And I don't like have a Yerba drink with me, but this is my pseudo. And hi, super nice to meet you. I'm Dina. I also go to UCLA. I'm a second year doubling in biology and econ, and also really passionate about corporate sustainability and honestly, a lot of the stuff that you do. So really excited to get to talk. Really excited to talk to you too as well. So Gretchen, you're the regeneration and sustainability lead at Goyaki. You've worked at natural food companies before. Like we'd love to hear more about your experiences and just your professional life. So I'm just going to open it up to you to share and introduce yourself a bit. Sure. So I, like you said, I lead the sustainability and regeneration at Goyaki Yerba Mate. And my trajectory to getting there was sort of a, not a linear path. So it wasn't a linear path. It was, I worked at a natural foods company before that, but then prior to that, I worked in many different industries, nonprofits for 10 years. I worked in, as a consultant in environmental planning. I worked in real estate. I worked in solar. <laughs> I started out in retail. So I, I think of myself as a jack of all trades. Jill, Jill of all trades. Absolutely, really impressive. So before we start talking about everything, obviously we're here to talk about, so we wanted to ask you to start, especially because the company kind of emphasizes the culture of Yerba Mate passing it around in a gourd. You personally, was the first time that you tried Yerba Mate, was it from a can or a glass or was it from the gourd? Can you share that experience with us? That's a good question. The first time that I, I, I tried Guayaki Yerba Mate, it was a passion terere, which is uh, our Yerba Mate beverages in the bottles. And it was at my interview for this position. Yeah, it, that was the first time. It was delicious. It gave me a lot of en energy for the interview. All right, well, now I know which drink I should get instead of the pseudo drink. There you go. Yeah, so going back to the Jill of all trades that you mentioned earlier, we also listened to your podcast on Lyft and how you struggled with finding your purpose in your 20s and your 30s. So can you just paint us a better picture of what you're interested at the time and what that struggle looked like as you went through all these different career aspirations? Yeah, I think some young people when they graduate from college know exactly what they want to do. Maybe they're you know pre-med and they, they know they're going into medicine or they know they're going to be a lawyer or they know they're going to do the investment banking finance route. And I was a humanities major and really had focused on music as well as a music minor. And so what I really wanted to do was be a famous singer and movie star. <laughs> and I did not have the talent to do that. And so how, you know, what do you do with that major? And so I knew what I cared deeply about was making a difference. And that's why I started off in nonprofits. Uh, I was a general manager for performing arts nonprofit. And from, and then also I was doing retail to sort of pay, pay, pay my bills on the side because I was not that lucrative. And so how did I get here? Well, I became a little disenchanted with nonprofits. They can be as bureaucratic as any, you know, corporation. And so I got a master's in environmental planning and I remember taking my ecological restoration class and thinking, okay, this is what I want to do. But I didn't have a science background. I didn't have an engineering background. And when I graduated, there weren't really sustainability jobs yet. There was ESG in, as an engineer. 
and that was kind of what was being practiced. And so I, I went into consulting and environmental planning, didn't like that so much. And so really it took a while for me to put all the pieces together. And when I started doing sustainability, it's like that aha moment where all the dots connected. And it's like, wait, I care about people and making a difference. I care about the environment and it, sustainability puts those together. And so it was, a, it's just, yeah, one of those, I just knew when I, I, I knew I was in the right place. That sounds really powerful. And I think like for a lot of our listeners, like we find a lot of comfort in that, you know, being college students, a lot of us still don't know what we're interested in. So I love that you like point that out. So it sounds to me like, you know, when you got into sustainability, it felt like you found like meaningfulness to your work. So how would you define meaningfulness and impact in your work? Yeah, I find tremendous uh, meaning in my work. It's very, it's very tangible. It's about continual improvement. And I feel like my purpose is to make a difference and improve the world. And more than any other job, more than working in nonprofits, more than working uh, in consulting, it just feels like I am actually making a difference. I'm starting new programs. I'm pushing people to continually improve on what they're already doing in operations. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful job. I mean, I don't mean I have a lot of power in the company, but um, it's very, it's very rewarding. It's very meaningful. Mm, yeah. I do want to acknowledge that I think you do have a lot of power because <laughs> in that, in that Lyft podcast, you, you mentioned you started your own sustainability department. Like that's absolutely insane. So can you just give us a little bit more insight into what that was like? Like show us your- You're so cute. <laughs> sure. Well- you know, I started out for that company as a director of administration and corporate giving. And I was able to do that because I was coming from nonprofits and I had done grants management from a nonprofit's perspective. And so jumping to corporate giving was a, was a no-brainer. It was really easy to do. And administration was not something I was interested in, but it was something I could do pretty well. And so once I came in there, we were setting up a new facility. So I found myself, you know, saying, wait, we have to buy the no VOC paints and we have to install the, the low, you know, water toilets and, you know, let's get recycled car carpets because that's just how I thought. And so once we did that, the CEO said, well, you know, let's do a green, let's do a green business um, certification, which is a facility certification. And so I took that on and then six months in, you know, I was already sort of implementing these green programs. We started first with zero waste. And so kind of putting those together and also doing, you know, corporate giving, it made sense to have a kind of more CSR focused sustainability department. What I do now is much more sustainability and regeneration versus CSR. But that's how I started out because I had the community outreach background and I had the basic knowledge of how to do certifications. Right. I love that. So did you face any resistance when it came to implementing? I know you described it as like a very smooth process, very natural, but what kind of barriers did you have to overcome? Yeah. You always face barriers in sustainability, always. And if I think you have to be a very determined person, which I am, 
you have to be kind of stubborn. Like, nope, I'm going to follow up on this again. No, it's been a year. I think I'm going to try again. <laughs> so what the CEO is very pro-environmental. He you know, was in nonprofit, had a nonprofit background as well. So that helped. But the barriers that I faced were really across departments. So I'm not really, you know, my position is I've never really been in one department or part of a department. I usually kind of operate across all departments. And so coming in, you're, you know, whether it's a new position or whether you're established, you're always going to a department and asking them to do something that be, is beyond their job description. So, hey, accounting, I know you're closing the books and you might be doing an audit, but can you run some reports for me? Or, you know, hey, production or manufacturing you know, facilities, I know you have to get the product out the door, but, you know, I need to talk to you about safety and zero waste here or, you know, the, the supply chain getting, you know, your data on packaging. And so you're always facing resistance to that, but it usually is something that people get used to over time. And that's where that persistence. Right. So I guess over time, as they saw more things being implemented, do you think like your company began to view sustainability differently? My previous company, I think, yeah, I think they, they grew over time to understand what it is. A lot of people will hear the word sustainable and they don't really know what that is, or they don't really want to dig that deep. So for instance, when we you know, launched our first impact report, there wasn't a lot of employees reading it. And so I did a, an Earth Day activity, employee engagement, that was kind of a game, you know, where I did teams and kind of like, you know, who knows the facts from the impact report. And so sometimes you have to sort of bring them along and educate them whenever you have access to them. And at my current position at, at Glycee, I do a newsletter that's quarterly and sort of, you know, starts to get people interested in different topics like, you know, zero waste or, or a justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion program, and just gives them tidbits and then links to, you know, the articles on the website and our blog if they want to see. Just as a quick clarification, you kind of mentioned a little while back that your past job was working more in CSR and now you're kind of working more in regeneration and sustainability. I think that for a lot of people, especially for myself, when looking for a job or an internship or something, those words seem kind of synonymous. Could you speak to the differences in terms of what they mean and how they apply to your job description? Yeah, it's a really good question. So CSR is, it's traditionally associated with the more employee engagement and corporate giving side of things. So I was the director of their, their foundation that gave money away. And so if you think about the skills that are required for that, community outreach is really big. So people skills and understanding nonprofits, understanding indicators that nonprofits might track and having that sort of due diligence mindset of, okay, are they really doing what they you know, say they're doing? So that that's sort of a community outreach corporate giving part of CSR. And then the other big part of CSR is employee engagement. And once again, people skills and getting uh, your employees fired up about a volunteer day, talking to them about, you know, matching their donations 
to their local nonprofit. It is really focused on giving, on employee volunteering, and on local. So typically, it, you'll have someone in HR or CSR, maybe, you know, they fall under something else that, that works with the local community. And in our case, in the previous company, it was Richmond. And so think about the skills for that, very people-oriented. Then I came to Guayaki, and I don't do corporate um, philanthropy so, so much anymore, but I took on the more technical aspects of sustainability. And so those look like carbon accounting. That's a very technical exercise, carbon accounting. You have to understand your units and your Excel spreadsheet and your math and your science. And it's a very, it's a different skill set. As same with zero waste, same with any kind of regulations and standards. They, they're very, it's, a, it's you know, very different from, from the people skills. And so I think, you know, now I'm doing more, more of that, a little bit more of the technical but still doing the, you still always need people skills for influencing those employees. Yeah, I can only imagine. I can also imagine the difference between working at a company and trying to implement sustainability where there wasn't in the past and then coming to a company where it seems to kind of be in, in, integrated into every aspect of the business model. We wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience at Guayaquil, a little bit about just how it's been working in a company that has such um, ambitious missions like the regeneration of the Atlantic rainforest and supporting of local communities in South America. And we know that you mentioned in a previous podcast that you actually got to visit South America and experience the community there. So we just wanted to start by asking you what that entire experience and working at the company has been like. Well, it's been a wonderful experience. I've really enjoyed it. The supply chain or the supply web, some people refer to as the supply web, is fascinating. It's, we have indigenous and smallholder growers of yerba mate in Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil. And so being able to visit them was a very unique experience and not typical of working for a food company. And so let me just touch on that before I go jump into my experience in Latin America. Typically working for an ingredient company, you know, what this is true for textiles too. You use, <clears throat> you, you, unless you're really big, you use, and so that means that you go to them and you say, hey, we need these 20 ingredients to make my, my cookie recipe, right? And they will source that for you. And so the problem with that is that you have what's called like an, an indirect relationship with your supplier. And so if you want your supplier of your, your let's say your wheat grower to start, you know, maybe doing cover crops, maybe doing organic, maybe doing, you know, other regenerative ag practices, you have no access with, to them and you have no leverage with them. And so that is the problem of these indirect relationships that are really the norm in, in the food and, like I said, textile industry. And so it was unusual for me to have the opportunity to visit the growers. It meant <clears throat> it, was, it was only possible because we have 30 employees on the ground in, you know, in the fields in, in those three countries, and they have built the relationships 
with these communities and they visit them, you know, monthly or, or sometimes a little different schedule from that. But, you know, without those, I would have no ability to know, to, to be able to visit them, to know where they are. Sometimes you source ingredients and you don't even know the country of origin, which is, you know, obviously problem, right? Because then you don't know what your environmental and social risks are in that, you know, place. And so that's why it's such a unique experience for me to have visited them. So now let me tell you a little bit about it. It was life changing, really. You know, you hear things like indigenous and you have a picture in your mind about what, you know, that might mean. And of course, like any group that has an, you know, a name attached to them, there's huge variability. They're all different. And the indigenous growers that we work with, they wear Western clothes like we're all wearing right now. You know, that was something I didn't know. They are living on the edge in between their traditional culture and Western culture. And they are driving motorcycles. You know, so that was really interesting to educate myself about the conditions that indigenous cultures are going through right now, how different they are, how they are not enough part of the Western culture to be thriving, how their traditions have been take a, a lot of their resources have been taken away. So for most indigenous cultures, their land was taken away. They are they were displaced. The the growers that we work with, I remember one woman telling her story and you know they they're they were taken away from their families. A lot of their community members were killed. Some of them were treated as slaves. And although that is a colonial past that has caused deep harm in all in all countries really they they have evolved to now have this sort of equilibrium of trying to work with you know western brands like you know like us and being able to meet them was it was just very moving and very humbling and made me want to you know fight really hard and i think the other part is the experience of the rainforest itself was also very meaningful. And the, once again, you hear the word rainforest and you have something in your, in your mind. And then you go and visit it and you realize that there is no one rainforest. We have some communities like the Marek in, in Brazil, it's a wild rainforest. And you can't, you know, like there's yerba mate growing natively. That's how yerba mate natively grows is under the shade of the canopy. And so, you know, they're trying to get into this dense rainforest to, you know, harp, to find the trees and harvest them. That's a very different picture from actually what you see behind me. So this is Argentina. This is the reserve that we own. It's uh, established under our nonprofit, the Iguazu Agroecology Foundation. And you can see this isn't quite as dense. This is a regenerating rainforest. And so the point I'm trying to make is the forest itself and what stage of regeneration it's at and how diverse it is. Diverse it is also has a lot of variability. So just opening up my eyes to that was really, really powerful, really meaningful. It's, it sounds like such an amazing experience and it's really making me wanna buy the first plane ticket I can after this. You pandemic. should, yeah.
Yeah, I'm just wondering, because you've spoken a lot to kind of this opportunity that you had through Guayaquil that you wouldn't have through a lot of other companies and just how much this company is sort of a diamond in the rough in the food industry and the beverage industry. Do you feel that working at this company has changed either your perception of corporate sustainability as a whole or maybe your hopes for what corporate sustainability could look like in the future? I'd say it's changed my perspective of sustainability and regeneration in supply chain specifically. So we, we mentioned how broad sustainability is, that there's social, there's environmental, and then within environmental, there are your warehouses or your facilities, whether you're your, they're your offices or, you know, whether you do your own manufacturing, we use, you know, co-packers for our manufacturing, but we do have dozens of warehouses that house our electric vehicles distributing our product. And so there, you know, there's probably a little bit more focus or there's more norm on focusing on those facilities, you know, the zero waste and the renewable energy and, and even electric fleets are becoming more common in the United States. But what was unusual for Guayaquil or what is unusual for Guayaquil is to have the access to making such a deep impact at the growing stage. That is phenomenal. I mean, you have brands like Dr. Bronner's and you know, also having deep relationships uh, with their growers. But in general, that's, I think, a, a struggle for, for a lot of companies. So yes, my concept of sustainability really changed because of that. And then my concept of sustainability also came to embrace the concept of regeneration. And that has been something that I have learned at Guayaquil. And do you, do you know the difference? Do you want me to tell you a little bit about the difference? Please go ahead. Leading, leading question. So I think of sustainability focusing on doing less harm. So, you know, how can we, we already are producing waste at our facilities. We're already producing emissions from our packaging. How can we do, how can we minimize that harm? How can we do lightweighting in our packaging, recyclable packaging? How can we do, have a zero waste program where we recycle and compost? And that is pretty traditional for sustainability uh, and as well as the social programs like justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, employee engagement, philanthropy. And then I think of regeneration as how can we support living systems to have the capacity to regenerate themselves. So it's, it's for a rainforest, it looks like building the soil and the water holding capacity of the soil and allowing this, the, the forest to regenerate on its own. So for instance, this forest behind me, I'm not sure exactly where this plot was in Argentina, but it looks like it might've been the, the originally, they were sun plots of yerba mate. And then we came in and we have planted a lot of native plants for, you know, to, to grow up and to shade the yerba mate. But also if you just leave the forest alone and you provide the conditions are right, you have good soil and good water and good sun, it's going to regenerate on its own. And so what's so exciting about a forest like this is to watch it regenerate on its own. And, and now we have captured 
Larete, the a jaguar, which is a keystone species for this. We've captured them on our monitoring, our fauna monitoring, which is huge, huge. That that has created the conditions and regenerated itself that now it is bringing back the biodiversity that was there. So that's the concept of regeneration. You can apply that to yourself as well. So we have 500 employees. What is the difference between regeneration for employees versus you know, sustainability? It is providing the conditions for your employees to start to regenerate all the harm that, that, that we have, all the disease or dishealth you know, that, that we carry. And so what does that mean? You know, maybe that means a justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion program to provide the right conditions for those anti-racist conversations that we need to be having as a society and also within our culture of, of business. So those conditions and allowing employees to start to educate themselves and regenerate their own extractive perspective that we, or racist perspective that we can't help having because we're in a broken system. You know, can't, you know, we might not be bad people, but we might have grown up in a culture that has pretty harmful economy, a pretty harm, pretty, pretty racist structures, our schools and our, you know, other structures. And so allowing employees the tools to start to regenerate their thinking. That's an example of how to apply it to a person. That sounds incredibly impactful. And I think that Goyaki also does a really good job of showing some of that impact on the website with a bunch of videos and just different things. It's really important for the consumers to be able to see. That kind of leads into a discussion about marketing, about Goyaki and about companies in general. So obviously your company is doing so many impressive things as you've mentioned and even more than what you've talked about. And it's just, it's incredibly easy for a company in general to post about its sustainability successes. It's an easy marketing strategy, but it's a totally different conversation when goals are set and not met in a given time period. And mm -hmm. I, we at Voice think that it really speaks to the impact of a company and the honesty of a company, how they handle those types of situations. So we're wondering how you deal with these sorts of situations at Guayaki, how you personally feel that companies should deal with the situations when they don't either they don't achieve their goal or they do something that's not very admirable. Well, those are two really different things. So let's talk about achieving a goal. So I think that there's nothing wrong with not achieving your goal if you are, if there's a reason for it. So let me give, let me give you an example. So we achieved our mission in part last year. We had a 2020 mission to steward and restore 200,000 acres of South America Atlantic rainforest and create a thousand living wage jobs. So that was, you know, something that then we were supposed to do that by 2020. And we hit 200,000 acres stewarded, but we were about, I think, at 800 jobs. And partially that was because we were counting jobs every year. Now, over the years, we have had more than a thousand living wage jobs, but in one year, we weren't at a thousand. And when you set a target, you, it's okay to set an ambitious target. In fact, I encourage it because it starts your organization and the employees saying, 
wow, that's, we just publicly declared that. What are we going to do to hit that? And, and that's okay to, you know, maybe you fall a little short of your target as long as you're transparent with um, your consumers. So that's really different from your second question was more about doing something wrong or, or clarify what you mean by the second part of your question. Yeah, I'm realizing now those are definitely two different things. If some big oil company experiences an oil spill and kind of it's something that they could try to cover up and not talk about or it's something that they could be transparent about and move forward. Just what do you think is the best move for a company in that, right, to still try to not lose its customers, but at the same time still maintain the customer loyalty and transparency with that? Well, let me speak from a consumer point of view for just a second. We have to hold um, businesses accountable, no matter who that business is. So, you know, whether that's Guayaquil or whether that's ExxonMobil, <laughs> we have to hold them accountable as consumers, all of us, all businesses, right? And so that's, so now let me put on my Guayaquil hat and say that if we do something wrong or we haven't done something good enough, we need to be transparent about it and be humble about it. And, and follow in Patagonia's don't buy the shirt, <laughs> you know, footprints. Transparency, I think, has gotten to a new level where consumers are demanding transparency in a way that wasn't there before. And I think that that's something that is working in our favor as consumers. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So the whole fact that Guayaki is doing a lot of great things and really pushing a lot of that, at least on the website, is that a big part of Guayaki's marketing strategy to college students and to consumers? And has that sort of helped Guayaki grow in popularity? Yeah, I think I'm going to separate grow in popularity from grow in sales. So the jury is still out on whether a extremely strong sustainability regeneration program leads to extremely strong sales. There's a lot has been written on this and we ourselves believe and a lot of brands believe that we benefit from our sustainability. But there is also the reality that there is a disconnect between brand fans, brand loyalty, brand love and your purchases. So there's just a disconnect in societies. You know, we all, the, you know, five of us might be, you know, very green. We might, you know, care a lot about people. Are all our purchases and all our actions aligned with that? I'd say probably not. I'd say, so I, I guess there is a lot of alignment that still can happen out there with all brands on when you make that purchase becoming more conscious, we're a very unconscious society. And so there's a lot of growth that still needs to happen to that. With that, at the same time, we absolutely benefit and do have, I think, some you know, growth in sales from our sustainability. It's just really hard to make the argument, is it, you know, how related that is. Right. Does that answer that? I was just going to say, I never thought about the, the difference between popularity and sales, but that's an incredibly good point. So I'm just going to bounce off of what you said earlier and also Dina's question. 
something that we talk about in voice a lot is just about like having win-win. So in this case for Guayaki, sustainability has become part of its brand image. So how do you suggest larger corporations make these win-losses where they make a more sustainable product, but it might occur with a loss? How do you suggest they go about that? So if a company was to create a more sustainable product, let's say it might result in a decrease in sales. How would you speak to this company if they have that fear of their sales decreasing? So uh, you're talking about costs increasing or sales decreasing? Pro- probably you're co- talking about costs, mm-hmm. right? Are you, are you trying to say if a company is faced with the decision to increase its costs because, for instance, it wants to support regenerative ag and that's an increase in in costs, are you talking about what I what what a company should should say? What I should would say to a company? Yeah. Okay. I I would say a couple of things. First of all, sustainability does have a lot of benefits outside of sales. So we just talked about a somewhat tenuous, unclear how uh, chicken and egg sustainability and sales are right. Well, what we haven't talked about is all the other benefits of sustainability. So for instance, employee engagement and productivity and, you know, uh, profit to the company is in large part, you know, driven by how an employee feels about working at the company. So I have heard from so many employees that I've done new hire orientations for, say, I worked for, I wanted to work for Guayaki because you're a B Corp or I wanted to, because of, you know, I wanted to work for you because of all the work you do with hiring formerly incarcerated and electric vehicles or any element of our sustainability. And that's money to the company right there. So there's that, there's the, you know, connection with sales. And then I think that, you know, there are ways to design your books, your accounts, your accounting, your profit and loss statement in a way that you, you still make a profit, but that you also recognize that you have a responsibility to give back. Sorry, my Zoom is just lagging a bit. Yeah, so that's really interesting for you to say. And I just had a quick question. We mentioned earlier that Guayaki was exploding and its popularity is exploding. So how does your company work to expand its operations but still maintain your sustainability plan? And that, that is a challenge right now because part of our growth has really focused on our distribution company, which is fairly new for the company. We merged with our distribution in the last Um, year or two, and we only started our distribution company about five years ago. So it's still evolving and it's a very different business from food manufacturing. And so, you know, as we are growing more warehouses and more vehicles and, and more employees driving these vehicles, how do we integrate sustainability into that? That is actually my new challenge for the year. And so That looks like trying to form relationships with the heads of warehouses and fleet manager and trying to start pilot projects. So for instance, we just, so if you want to, for instance, do zero waste across all 28 warehouses, I wrote up a three pager on how to do that. Here's each step, you know, here's what you need for it to be ongoing. Here's what I need for the impact report. And then gave that to someone at one of our warehouses locally. 
And he said, oh yeah, I can do this. And so then from that learning, we can start to launch that at other warehouses. We're doing the same thing for renewable energy and electric vehicles. And so each, each time you want to look across your whole, you know, supply web or, you know, whether it's the warehouses or you know, whatever it is, and you want to make an improvement, sometimes it helps to start with a, a little pilot project. I'm just wondering, because, and then we keep saying it, but it seems that Guayaquil is really expanding at a, a huge rate. Do you, do you feel that at that point where, again, you're trying to maintain the sustainable business while you're balancing the fact that so many people want to buy your, do you feel that there's sort of a lot of um, kinks to be ironed out as the operations are expanding. And then in that case, is your job more proactive or reactive in terms of proactive, like you mentioned, kind of writing things out and trying to set up the sustainability before an action is even taken or reactive kind of addressing certain issues that come up in the supply chain, in the distribution that you need to address to maintain kind of the steady flow of the company? It's a very intelligent question. I would say that, first of all, let me just clarify that we're not growing that. I think our growth is very manageable. I mean, I've been at another company where we went into Costco and sales just exploded because Costco's, you know, a whole other type of, of business. And so that was really hard on everyone. Guayaki's growth, in, in my experience, has been pretty steady, but not, not manageable. However, we are we are growing. Last last year, we you know we grew a fair bit, and I would say that there's probably both. Uh, there's probably a little bit of reactive and and proactive. I mean, certainly, I always have to be proactive. So, for instance, right now I'm going through our B Corp recertification, and it's the first time I'm I'm going to be certifying across the entire business, Latin America our distribution company, our, our brand manufacturing. And so, you know, that process involves continual improvement. And then I will do that again in three years. But during the three years in between, there will be that mindset, that proactive mindset of, okay, how can I improve my score? Well, if we just got, you know, I told the, the, the CEO, the president this several years ago, you know, well, we have no diversity on our board. And now we have two women on our board, which is really exciting. And so that's just an example of kind of pushing people and being proactive. And slowly over time, you're implementing either new programs or new changes. And at the same time, there is reaction. There is, wait, you just opened a warehouse and, you know, you need to, you know, let's think about, you know, renewable energy because you, you opened it up in this way and we didn't set up the systems to get the energy built and things like that. So it's a little bit of both. I love how you're working on all these different projects. Like these women have positions on the board. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are also interested in pursuing careers in regenerative agriculture or sustainability, but they're not exactly sure of what that might look like on a day-to-day basis. Can you give us more into like the insight of what you do every single day. Sure. I love my job. You all should go into sustainability. You really should. It's so creative. It's, I think, you know, I told you I wanted to be like a famous movie star, famous singer, music, you know, whatever. 
I think this is my, this is, you know, my substitute because it's creative. And I think in a lot of other jobs I've had, it was just so rote. It was so boring. And I love the newness. I love that I get to create new programs. I love that I get to, you know, we have a distribution company now. So now I get to apply a strategic lens to, you know, warehouses and things like that. And so every day, what it looks like besides the rapid change in creativity, it looks like, well, unfortunately, but you should know this if you're considering this, sitting in front of a computer. So, you know, very different from, from going into Regen Ag and being more of a forester or more of a farmer, more in the field. That would be, you know, I think very different. What I do is, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of computer work. It's a lot of meetings. So think about how I talked about how I go, I work across departments and I try to influence people. That means that, you know, this week I've had a meeting with the head of our G3 program, which hires our formerly incarcerated and the president about our justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion strategy for the year. And we were meeting someone with a nonprofit, a woman, really amazing woman, co-founder of Bioneers and talking about potentially bringing her in. It looks like meeting with the Latin America team and going over all our metrics. Okay, it's the end of the year. I'm working on our impact report and our B Corp recertification. I need all your metrics. Okay, what's our methodology for biodiversity? Okay, you're the expert in that. Get back that, get that back to me. So that meeting occurred. It looks like a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of data. A lot, a lot of data. It looks like managing your follow-up. And so that could be a project management tool or, you know, I do paper and pen um, sometimes. And so you have to have that system of being very organized and follow-up is my job. I am the person because I asked you to do something about zero waste and it is just number 100 on your list. And so I'm the person I have to just keep, oh, did you, okay, just reminding you again, you know, that follow-up is really valuable. So, you know, it also looks like I'm doing a newsletter that is, we're finally getting the draft and I need the Spanish and the, and the Portuguese translations and I need the images and it's holding a lot of information and it's working on a lot of projects at once. So you have to be able to balance all that. You can't be a flighty person. I mean, you can, it'll just, you're, you might need a personal secretary, which I don't have the luxury of having. Let's see, writing skills. Uh, sometimes I write a, a fair bit. I think that, I mean, I'm writing the impact report, write parts of the newsletter. I write articles for the blog. So having those writing skills is pretty important. Let's see, I mentioned the B Corp certification. As soon as I'm done with the impact report and the B Corp certification, I will be jumping into the fair trade certification. And so certifications on a daily basis looks like gathering information, keeping, comparing it to the standards and making sure that, you know, fair trade is actually very different from B Corp. But, you know, you are dealing with standards. And so understanding those and bringing them back to your organization, and maybe that looks like, hey, for fair trade, we want to improve our HR policies regarding something. And so it goes, it, that looks like me then reaching out to HR. 
So a lot of work on my own on a computer, dealing with data, spreadsheets, writing, and then a lot of reaching out to people within the organization across all departments, which is really fun, but also outside. So by that, I mean, you know, nonprofits, or we just joined the Santa Monica Zero Emissions pilot project, which is pretty exciting. And they did a press release and we, we were talking about data gathering and which electric vehicles we're going to use. And so, yeah, speaking to people outside the organization as well. It's a lot. It's so fun though. I love it. I, I think that for all of the college kids at Voice who love like the balance of all the different things and honestly the, it sounds like your job is so exciting and the creativity that you mentioned but then also the analytical skills the time management it's mm-hmm. just reassuring for us that want to go into um, sustainability especially in the business world and you mentioned a lot of computer work so that kind of leads me to wonder so it seems like your personal job within the company is manageable during COVID and doing it from home but Obviously, COVID must have impacted your supply chain operations at the leaf harvesting level and the distribution level. And probably because of that, the ripple waves impacted the corporate level. So can you speak a little bit to how Goayaki has been impacted by the pandemic and how it's kind of responded? Sure. I think there were a couple of of sort of key impacts going on. One was at the growing level, for instance, the indigenous communities really kind of shut their doors and said, you know, we're not, we're not going to be welcoming anyone, you know, outsiders like what, you know, Guayaki staff to our communities right now for safety reasons. And so that meant no harvesting. They were able to harvest, I think in some communities at the very end of the year, but now they're really busy making up because they're doing better and they have opened up for, for harvesting. But you know, a business like getting food out the door or, you know, food delivered, food or beverage delivered means that you have a lot of, you're managing your inventory. And so we had inventory on hand. And so that wasn't a problem for us for, 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 for not harvesting for that period. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know this, but this is another impact that is kind of interesting because you don't realize all the connections that are going to happen. So people went and stayed home more instead of going out, which means they they purchased more beverages, especially cans. And so there's a can short. And, and so we're dealing with that as a company. And that was a COVID. I think it was exacerbated by COVID. A lot of people buying the sparkling, you know, whether you know, sparkling beverages and beers and things like that for their homes. And so that was an interesting impact that we're still dealing with. And then I think. Probably, you know, the concern for our drivers who still had to work. So it's one thing for me to be able to not go into the office anymore and work from home, but our drivers still had to deliver. And so just a big shout out to all of our drivers who had to continue to deliver and did so with, you know, the dignity that that they have to keep showing up and, you know, had to learn the, the proper protocols for safety in order to protect themselves. I really like how you brought up a lot of points about how the supply chain was affected that we didn't really think about. And so looking towards the future, how do you see COVID-19 impacting the short-term and long-term goals that you set? You guys have just accomplished your most recent goal. So how 
what does it look like going to the future when it comes to goal setting? Sure. So I mentioned that we achieved our mission last year. And so that gave us an opportunity, especially for me to drive bigger targets and across more than just our rainforest targets. And so we are launching with our impact report four new big targets that are 10-year targets. And the first one is we're increasing our, we're going from 200, our 200,000 acres goal to 2 million by 2030. And that, and we are opening it up to not just stewarded, but, you know, protected through partnerships. So we work in, the, in Latin America with a lot of nonprofits. For instance, we're working with the World Wildlife Foundation and a women's cooperative in Paraguay. And sometimes, you know, we'll go in and we'll buy the mate, but then we also form relationships with them because we're committed to regeneration. And so, you know, we ask them, you know, what can we do in partnership to protect the forest? And so we're, we're, we're expanding that target to start acknowledging the work that we do in that area. And then our second one in regards to taking responsibility for our footprint really acknowledges all the warehouses that we, that I mentioned we're managing. And we have a target to be net zero by 2030 and have zero waste and renewable energy powered fleets and facilities. And then we have internal, you know, people are our employee target, and that is to make Guayaquil diverse, engaging a diverse, engaging, and inclusive place to work. And then we have a community, celebrating communities and cultures target. And that is to share the regenerative spirit of your month. And so those are our kind of like big external facing targets. And then of course, just to give you a sense internally, you'll have a lot of goals that and action plans that will line up with those targets. So, you know, how do you reach net zero? Okay, well, let's do a climate action plan, even, you know, either uh, formally or, you know, starting out on, on what are the steps that you're going to Gretchen, this is the point at which I interject myself and play a role again, which is we're coming up on the hour. I want to be respectful of your time. All I can say is like, as a listener right now, I can say this is going to be an amazing podcast. And I feel like I've listened to three different ones because you covered so much ground. And Dina and, and Laura, those were awesome questions. I should mention to you, Gretchen, that Dina has reviewed Guayaki. I think it was an excellent review. Laura and Dina are two of our guests. They're our best, they're two of our best reviewers. Uh, and so I want to thank Great. the co-host and Emily for, as always, for arranging the speaker series. And, and just so you know, you know, we're producing about uh, 40, 50 reviews a week. Uh, we've got about 50 people in this cohort. We're, we're still growing. Wow. So, so I want to just, you know, plant in your mind the idea that we're going to ask you back at some point because you're- I would love to be back. Yeah. I would love to just support young people in general and in, yeah, if you have, if any of your students in the cohort have more questions about what it's like to work in sustainability or, or whatever, please, please feel free to reach out to me. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time and, and also for all the insights that, that uh, and you've given. And I think that uh, people will really be wanting to listen to this. So have a great day, Gretchen. Thank you. Thank you and thank so you much. so much. It was a pleasure. Okay. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Wow, you guys did awesome. Oh my God, that was fascinating. I was like, I'm so grateful that I get to listen to this and I don't have to worry about asking questions. <laughs> I, I just was like taking it in. I thought it was really, really interesting stuff. It was it was very much like a multitasking, like talking to Laura and then checking the screen and then, but it was really fun. 
yeah I love the way she speaks to like everything it's very like passionate yeah I think I think when she was yeah. saying it's like that you know sorry Emily go ahead no no I was just saying like I was thinking the same thing as you Diego like I'm so glad I got to listen to that but you guys did an amazing job and she she's really really awesome the way that you spoke about everything I agree was so like enthusiastic and encouraging yeah really inspiring I mean I had spoken to her once before and she was really supportive of voice but I I, I just I didn't realize the depth of what she did and like all the initiatives that she has at the company like those that's pretty impressive I thought Dina if you want to send me oh no I was yeah, just yeah. gonna say if you want to send me you're gonna thank her for coming so I can just attach it if you want yeah I might her. I might chop it down a little bit so I can send that to you like <laughs> okay whenever you get it to me I'll send it to her and I'll just thank her for coming in but that's exciting okay. she was very excited to see it which was cool oh I was just wondering logistically will like will the will we be able to get a link to the podcast when it's finished yeah so I think we need to just think about how we're going to market market the podcast we haven't done it in a while so we need to take this out on social media and and internally and so forth and and basically like we have a new cohort um, that's starting like a week after you guys and so I definitely want them to give them the opportunity to listen to this because I think there's so much in it you know and so I I, I think it's actually good that this is asynchronous because maybe more people at the end of the day hear it you know and because because people have class and different you know availability and things like that so making it asynchronous is a really really good idea so it's something to think about going forward because I think that just worked so well you know, and not having the distraction of like how many people are there and like, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, you know? So it's something for us to think about, but but we definitely want to market this. And so I just need to, uh, Emily and I need to find somebody who's going to edit this, who has the kind of skills to do that on whatever garage band or whatever. And then as soon as we can turn that around, you know, we'll, we'll market it on social media and, and you know, uh, we're building a capacity on our website to be able to post things there too. So people can go and like check out our podcasts. So yeah. Oh, and sorry, also totally separate question. Do you have the link to the Josh Dorfman speaker series? Because I think I was going to send that to 